Hi, I'm Delisa. Hi, I'm Ashton, and welcome to our second episode of Accessibility. We're here with Adam and Denise to share some tea on Project Echo and their campaign, Capture the Barrier. So grab your cup, sit back, and get ready to sip on some hot tea. Welcome, Adam and Denise. Can you please introduce yourselves? Yeah, um, I'll just go quickly. Um, I am Denise Kamuka. I am a second year PhD student in the Department of Kinesiology. And I am working with Adam and Team Meisner on um, the Project ECHO research project. Um, yeah, and I work as a research assistant on that. Yeah, well, that's that is a great, an awesome project for us, isn't it, Denise? And um, since I'll give a little introduction to myself, my name is Adam Purdy. I've been working with uh, the University of Western Ontario since 2018 in a graduate program in uh, sport leadership and management. And one of the, I guess, my background in sport is I was a three-time Paralympic athlete. I competed in a number of set of games. Uh, most notably was my double gold medals from the Sydney 2000 games. Um, as a swimmer in the pool, you really, my experiences of disability in society have, uh, have really evolved along the way. Um, but this particular program that I'm in at Western really focuses on um, recognizing disability in society, re recognizing disability in parasport and um, I've just really had a, such a blast working with uh, Dr. Laura Meisner and her research team, specifically on this Project ECHO initiative. That's amazing. And I'm also very interested to understand more about what exactly is Project ECHO. And could you even tell me why it was called Project ECHO? Yeah, well, like, I guess in the, in the early days when we started um, looking at this project, this project really evolved out of um, well, it was the ongoing initiative or dissemination initiative to try to wrap up a, a larger project, which is called the Major Sport and Events, uh, Major Major Sport Events and Parasport Participation Investigating Post-Event Opportunities uh, and Experiences. So that project, Dr. Laura Meisner was really focusing on going back to 2014 and 2015. Uh, and each each of those uh, specific years, we're focusing on the 2014. Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and the 2015 Parapan Am Games in Toronto. And the Project ECHO was really about uh, an initiative to try to capture the voices of those who were impacted by the games. And those people, those being people who live in the cities affected by the games. So Project ECHO really is about, uh, you know, reverberating the voices and capturing the voices, keeping the discussions going uh, about the impacts that occur at games and in the legacy of the games afterwards in the post-games era. So that's really where Project ECHO gets its name. It's just kind of uh, about the, the continuation or the reverberation of information over time. Yeah, and I'm just to add to that. So um, COVID has presented for everybody a very um, unique situation where um, you know, even when Adam was doing his interviews, uh, having somebody not mention, I mean, not mention COVID, and that was very, very rare. It was literally, you know, the first thing out of people's mouths. They wanted to talk about it, and so we started realizing that we need to shift a little away from just looking at the games and looking at that legacy piece from the games and instead trying to look at accessibility to physical education I mean, physical activity and sports on a holistic level on a more broader level um, and as researchers we would then dig out and make those um, deductions in terms of how that is related to legacy initiatives from the games um, and so yeah so things have kind of broadened up a little bit and hence we are at this place where we can even start putting together campaigns like Capture the Barrier. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, those are some really great points that you mentioned. So I know you mentioned that now you've realized that you need to take more of a holistic approach to interviews. So I was wondering if there are any significant differences that you found in interviews pre versus during the pandemic. Oh boy, yeah. Well, so just so you know, I can I started my my research. I was going to be doing data collection like in March of 2020. Uh, so I had everything all planned, um, but people were, I think, blindsided by what had happened in, from a social situation. So we're, we got to think about, we're focusing, at least in Laura's research initiative on major, major parasport games, is focusing on major events and major, all these major events that happened in 2020 were pretty much wiped out and they were canceled or postponed. And a lot of people were, and, and sport in general, um, was really faced with uh, quite a, a large existential crisis. Uh, so people were really thinking about, uh, weren't really thinking about, well, there's gotta be an event. The, the event still has to happen. There's a global pandemic happening. And a lot of people that's like, as Denise says, that's all they were focusing on. And so the pre, we, we don't really have like a measure of, of data before, but that was something that was like a, a, some thought that just never really occurred to people before was the impact of something like the, to this magnitude. Um, but when it's always there, when it's the only thing that people are discussing, because you know, you're talking to people, you're trying to set up interviews. Um, one of the things is how are you doing during these strange times or you know the usual email intro now, which is that you wanna know how people are doing uh, during this. And I think they're definitely, were open to talk about COVID, especially in my interviews for my research. Um, and they're impacted about, you know, the ways that their facility might've been closed or accessibility related issues. Now people are not actually being able to have access to the things they did before. So the interviews are really uh, sculpted around the social situations occurring uh, and the impacts from COVID. So, it just became so much of a of a, this cloud that was over overarching over almost every discussion. I don't know, Denise, if you had any other. We, we haven't really done many interviews in that respect, other than uh, in those particular ones. Yeah. So our actual first set of interviews, we had, we had a, a focus group. We had a first set of focus groups were actually during the pandemic, and so that obviously just brought up a lot of um, things that we, we hadn't fully anticipated in going into this research, but really highlighting what, you know, what we all kind of know is um, COVID has disproportionately affected people with disabilities, you know, and even in accessing physical activity. And so um, in, the, in that focus group, a lot um, came up about, you know, mental health and just that the, the feeling of loneliness during COVID, but and even how that is demotivating towards wanting to get up and leave and get physically active and seeing that there's a need for support in that sense. But then also um, one major thing that came up was this feeling of unsafety. And primarily that feeling came from uh, the fact that even before the, 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 the pandemic, the built environment is not a place where many people with disabilities felt safe. It didn't felt they didn't feel safe to go out and um, access, um, yeah, to access just opportunities to get, you know, to exercise and to you know just get physically active. And so those are things that yeah were, were highlighted, especially in 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 a, in a situation where um, those safe spaces with, that they used to have the gyms, the community centers that um, created places for, for like even socializing for them, all those were taken away. And what they're left with is spaces that initially they didn't feel safe in, initially were not built to um, accommodate for their needs. Yeah. I can relate to, <laughs> You know, I feel like COVID has exacerbated a lot of the issues that were pre-pandemic and really put a light on them. 
because as a person with a disability who tries to be physically active or go to places that encourage that kind of mobility, um, many of the things I think about is how do I enter a building with a mobility scooter or because I'm immune compromised, I'm thinking about, is it clean? Are the people coming in sick and how far away should I be? So some of the things that COVID brought up about social distancing, I like to be close to people, but I do need that distance if you're sick. Um, I think it's beneficial. And I also like how you guys said that there's been like a focus on the mental health aspect now because people are really feeling that in the COVID era, being lonely, not being able to interact as much or the traditional ways in which they would interact with other people are not available to them anymore. So I find that fascinating. And I hope that as you guys continue your research, maybe there will be, um, and the pandemic's over, there will be an opportunity to continue adding those other aspects of questions to ensure like the mental health aspects included when people are doing research on things that are built environment related or even socially related. Cause sometimes we forget about mental health or well-being things, other sides or other supports that are making it very difficult to participate. I'm curious, what else did you, what else have you guys discovered so far in your research? Is it mostly about mental health in COVID or there's more physical barriers that you notice that people often don't think about? Well, yeah, you know, I think COVID has, um, and again, we're talking a little bit about COVID because it's, it's really been the game changer. But as I was doing my research, really focusing on the post games, recognizing disability in the post games environment, I had a lot of great discussions with uh, stakeholders in sport from across Ontario. And these stakeholders in sport, in parasport specifically, had a lot of great things to say, but one in particular spoke about this idea around uh, accessibility for all and how COVID kind of was an equalizer in this case and the things that uh, we typically would take for granted as being you know things like uh, you know the button to open up your, the door to go inside well that's not a, what and I hate that word a handicap button is not only for handy handicapped people um, I, I just kind of cringe when I hear that because I see people with strollers using it. I see older people using it. I see people just carrying too many bags using it. It's not like that. And it also has become really a, a tool to for safe, safe uh, use of doors and, and touch points of things. So I think accessibility in, in my research at least was something that was, accessibility is both individual and communal, right? It's something that needs to be, when we think about all of the individual accessible needs, it seems to be infinite. Mine aren't the same as what yours are, uh, my needs in terms of accessing things. Um, but we have some common things that could be beneficial for everybody. And I think when you look at something like uh, a COVID event, uh, where we're forced to do things slightly differently, uh, it really boils it down to what are the basic fundamental needs of everybody? And everybody needs to access a door. Everyone needs to be able to have ease, roll in access if you could, that would be ideal, uh, to various levels of a building. Um, and some of those things are related to a pandemic and other things are just well commonsensical in some, some ways. Uh, so it, my research came up, there was a lot of good discussion around that piece within a hosting context. So things like, what does it mean to welcome a delegation from Canada who are bringing all these participants who have a range of accessibility needs from intellectual impairment to physical impairment, we need to blanket everything. And that led everything to, you know, roll in shower access to toilet paper positioning, uh, which is a really solid point when you think about leveling the field is where do these things need to be and how accessible are they truly? And that is like a really good point of recognizing how, how do we arrive at that, right? It's like, when I say to you, Ashton, like my needs aren't the same as yours. Um, in that case, what are your needs and how do we recognize those in a way that isn't uh, you know, forcing you to divulge every little personal thing that you know, 
about yourself, but allows it to become open and available so we can accommodate to it. And I think that's part of what COVID has maybe done for people because there's been some things that have opened up and other things where people have said, that makes sense to do it that way. Yeah, Adam, you mentioned so many great points. I really appreciate just the emphasis on how accessibility isn't only individual, but it's communal and just the mutual benefits that we have to different accessible supports. Even just thinking about the way that things are built and just the concept of universal design and being able to address multiple needs um, in the creation of a space. So I just wanted to take a step back and I know um, Denise, you mentioned capture the barrier. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that is and how that relates to Project ECHO as a whole. Great, thank you. Yeah, so Project ECHO, just to clarify, is, um, well, lives really on a website. And this website has been designed to capture um, the voices of people with disabilities and their allies and capture their experiences with physical activity and sports. And so there are a bunch of forums in there, a bunch of discussion topics in there. Um, but in order to uh, raise awareness about our site and to also just create content around what we're doing, um, we have developed a social media component as well. Um, and so that's where Capture the Barrier then is now housed. Um, but ultimately Capture the Barrier is it is an awareness campaign. I mean, it's a conversation that needs to happen. It's absolutely the right time for that conversation to happen. Um, but our ultimate um, goal with Capture the Barrier, because we are a research um, project, is to have people take that conversation um, to the website. And so to be transparent as researchers, that is what we're trying to get. Um, but Capture the Bay um, did come about, especially in the middle of the winter, that's when we started thinking about it, where, you know, you walk around and you see piles of snow covering the ramp, and you're like, even for me, I can't get over this battle, so how is somebody with a wheelchair supposed to get to, you know, and um, realizing that, man, this is a conversation, or this is something that has been brought up for so long, but we're still facing the same issues. And there are also probably a lot more um, barriers that we can't see. Um, just also just depending on what your disability is, depending on you know how you access things. And so that's how the idea of um, creating Capture the Barrier as a campaign came up. And so yeah, um, essentially Capture the Barrier is a social media campaign that is meant to capture um, people. It doesn't have to just be people with disabilities, but people's um, experiences with barriers to accessing physical activity. So be that physical, be that um, mental, be that invisible, be it you know very obvious. Um, yeah, those are things that we're trying to capture with this campaign and um, as much as we say capture the barrier uh, send in your photos we are also open to hey maybe put together a little comment or a little blurb about something that that you can't necessarily capture with a picture but um, it's still a valid barrier Adam, did you have something to add to that? Uh, no, just that that was that was uh, a, a great description of the capture the barrier. And you know, like like I said earlier, it's the, those little things, and, and Denise highlighted it as well. It's it's the subtle things I think that maybe are the biggest barriers to participation for some people, right? And another thing that kind of came up from my research was simple things that like that we maybe would take for granted, like sending out a PDF that isn't readable uh, or is, you know, for visual, uh, visually impaired um, readers. There's some things that just weren't working and you can't really capture that barrier other than the fact that that PDF or that document that you needed to read just can't be readable by your specific 
software. So that was something that was was really, a, a, I guess, a bit of an eye-opener for some of these host organizations was, okay, now in order for, you know, if we're gonna be sending information out that needs to be, in, in, at least in Canada, we have to have bilingual documents if you're working in these, these government related, why do we not have an aspect in there that says it must be uh, accessible in that way? So we're just thinking about things like that that are subtle barriers all the way to the big barriers, which are like just, just straight up, you can't get, get over it. Um, all the way down to the small things that you think or on a day-to-day -day basis that if that little thing was not there, it would make things so much easier and I can participate more. I think something that's interesting that has come out in this process as well is the uh, impact of language and how language in itself can act as a barrier. Um, if, if our language in any way alienates um, somebody, then already that's the barrier that, you know, they put up. And so, um, yeah, it's been interesting to, to, to just, um, in working with our partners, to hear their experiences with trying to promote physical activity and just how language has, is, just plays a huge role in, in, in bringing down those barriers. And one, one example of that, uh, Denise, just to kind of go on that, is the, you know, we, we're working with our Canadian team here, Team Meisner, and then we also have a team over in the UK where we're so fortunate to work with Dr. Gail McPherson and Dr. David McGilvery of the University West of Scotland. And those two um, are just so far-sighted and they can see everything that we're, the vision of what we're working on here, and they're doing the same thing over in their uh, particular environment. But we're using different terminologies. Uh, so here we're focusing on the person first, uh, you know, so we're focusing on the individual first. Um, some will focus on, you know, for looking at the sport side, uh, Paralympic sport tends to now use the, the words a uh, person with impairment as opposed to a disabled person or person with a disability. And over in the UK, they're focusing more on the disability first in that case. So there's a lot of ranges in which we need to consider how do we work with our partners to make sure that we're A, using the proper terminology and B, respectful of the way that they'd like to see this, um, this initiative in this campaign go forward. Now, of course, we're always gonna have, we're, we're, we're gonna have some controversy in some way. And that in some ways, that's good for us because it does drive some of the discussion to say, well, it should be this way or it should not be that way. And I think that's what we kind of are trying to poke a little bit uh, with this campaign is to, you know, what, what irks you about that? What makes you, what's your feeling about that? Why does it make you feel that way? Um, why do we need to focus on the person first or why do we need to focus on the disability first? What, you know, is it a disability or is it an impairment? And I think all of those are, are so relevant and great for spurring uh, discussions, especially in a research forum like Project ECHO. I'm glad you guys said a lot about language and I know there's a huge debate about person first language versus um, disability first. Uh, and it's a complex debate. There's a lot of people in the disability community who prefer to say disabled, I'm disabled. And then there's others who really prefer the person first language because they say it focuses more on the identity of a whole where some people see their disability as part of their identity and separating that fact is, is missing who they are. So I'm glad you guys talked about language and another aspect of language, which I'm interesting interested to see if you guys have explored are people who are deaf or have communication disabilities. So has there been communication with people who use ASL or different types of ways to communicate to see how that also impacts sports arenas and participating in sports? And uh, from my research, that was something that did come up in the, the host organization from the 2015 Parapan Am Games put a lot of effort into the ASL um, pieces that you would that you would use if you wanted to say you're sitting at uh, the venue and you're watching the sport 
they, they put a lot of effort into that descriptive uh, video or descriptive, I think it's, I think that's what it, they were using was descriptive uh, narration. So the announcers were using this and it was coming through, you could use the headpiece and it would, it would tell uh, the individuals what was going on. Um, but there was that, that has come up, but from the, from our specific research initiative, um, deaf sport and deaf Olympics um, hasn't really been a major focus of our research. We've, we've been focusing mostly on the, the physical impairment, even kind of um, not moved away, but we've tried to incorporate as many of the impairment types as we can, but we really have to stay, try to focus on one particular group if we're gonna to try to do this. And I know it's, there's so many different accessibility needs for a range of groups. We're talking about intellectual impairment, visual impairment, physical, um, auditory, uh, you know, all of these different types of impairment will also require so many different accessibility needs. And I think that's something that for us just to try to stay focused on one particular subset, I guess, if you will, of this grouping is that that's where we're able to really put the majority of our effort. Thanks, Adam. So we wanted to shift the conversation a bit towards Western and we're wondering what are some barriers that you've noticed um, or students with disabilities have noticed in terms of Western sports facilities and stadium? Mm. Well, from, from my end, my experience has always been pretty positive accessing the facilities at, at uh, Western. I find it to be quite a, an accessible campus um, but of course, with my uh, impairment type, it's mostly upper body. Um, you know, there's a lot of stairs. There's a lot of um, older buildings um, that have been converted to, to be more accessible uh, for people who use uh, mobility aids, um, such as chairs or scooters. Um, but I don't think it's always, it's always there, right? It's like one of those things you have to access one door only to be able to get up, or you have to access... Um, and those kinds of things are the subtle things that I think is what irks most people who have an impairment, who say, well, that person can go through three different doors to get to their place that they want to get to, but I'm stuck with only going through one access point, and the door is damn heavy, or the button stinks, or, you know, something that is just that one particular user experience. And I think the more that we have these type of conversations, the more that we will hash them out and we'll try to identify all the, the subtle things that, what I say subtle, um, but the subtle things that we could just make small improvements on to make a greater, a greater change for everybody who uses the facilities and the, uh, the buildings at Western. But from a sports perspective, if we're looking at like the, the recreation place, um, I think it's it's accessible. We've hosted swim meets uh, at the when we were able to at least. We've hosted swim meets, um, and that to me is usually a good indication of how accessible the building is, uh, because usually in swimming there's a wide range of athletes with impairment who are coming from abroad, and if it's easy for them to get on a pool deck and it's safe for them to get on a pool deck, that tends to be a good indicator that it's it's a good facility. You know, they can go and sit in the stands pretty easily. There are some places where, you know, you're, you're looking at spots that are only, only available maybe for wheelchair users. That's kind of, a, again, a, a downfall. And Darda might talk a little bit further about, well, maybe she's kind of sick of always having the same spot in a, in, a, uh, in a classroom setting because it's the only wheelchair accessible spot. And I think things like that are what, you know, the accessibility committees can consider is, is, again, how do we recognize what those needs are? And those needs are always gonna vary. All, it's gonna be a moving target for a lot of people because whether it's an auditory impairment or a visual impairment, they're all gonna have different needs. And some of those things are a little bit more easier to accommodate than putting in a, a ramp where there's stairs, uh, major infrastructure changes, as opposed to maybe a piece of technology that changes it for someone. And all of that is, uh, I think Western is doing a good job at it. And with the new building designs that they're bringing in, Thames Hall, 
I think there's, you know, they're thinking ahead and those kinds of things are what, uh, you know, when we get to the fine-tuned details, that's where we'll start to figure out how can we make it more accessible. Yeah, um, I, I have had some conversations with people in um, when we when we started rolling out this capture the barrier campaign, um, and I mean I'm not going to mention names because I haven't <laughs> gotten her permission, um, but yeah, I'm, I I did come across a student that mentioned um, that for them accessing um, and it's funny how <laughs> the common theme in what I'm going to say is actually accessing the bathroom. Is that they would they won't know when they go to the rec center um, what is a which is a female and which is a male bathroom because there's no braille on the on the sign you know and I was like oh I didn't even think of that but that is also just like could, yeah that is that is a very embarrassing situation that you could find yourself in right um, but also with the with the focus groups that we did, um, and also with a response that we we actually received from one of the capture the barrier um, entrants, was the idea that now that a lot of things are closed and a lot of buildings are closed, access and physical activity means doing it outside, and that means I don't know where the next bathroom is. I don't know if I'm and if I have if my my um, disability has, if I have a comorbidity, comorbidity that um, requires that I have access to a toilet whenever like the urge comes across, um, I'm not gonna be able to go out and access the, these facilities because I don't feel safe. And yeah, that, that's, that's something that actually has been coming up quite a bit. Yeah, I think with this campaign, it would be interesting to see what students say about these rec centers on campus and also like the TD Stadium and how their experience is accessing it. Because I know from my own personal experience and also speaking with other students, they'll talk about, well, there's no tactile plating for wayfinding or it's very difficult to do wayfinding or people with um, environmental sensitivities, maybe the smell of chlorine is something too strong for them to attend like a track meet, I, I mean a pool comp swimming competition, sorry, my words are jumbled here. Or um, I know for myself, when I think about the football games, I can dress as warm as I possibly can, but there's no way you're gonna catch me outside when it's cold to watch a game. So ways to figure that out would be great. And I'm excited to see what students have to say. Um, I do agree that there needs to be more conversations, especially with accessibility committees or people with disabilities to really get their unique experiences because oftentimes when I bring up things about barriers, it's like, I'm, they say, well, that's only you, Ashton. I'm like, have you spoken to other people if they're experiencing the same thing? And even if it's only me, how can we make things work for me or people like me? Um, so yeah, I'm interested to see what comes out of the project. And I'm glad that you mentioned also push buttons. I'm more of a automated sliding door girl. That for me, I find them accessible to most people with the push buttons because of my arthritis and my deteriorating muscles. Um, trying to push a button in the middle of winter, I end up getting a lot of damage or I end up hurting my wrist and that's the end. If a door is too heavy and I try to navigate it, I end up damaging my shoulder or potentially breaking my mobility device, which is a scooter because it slams on it. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm interested to see where that all goes. Yeah, but also in a, a pandemic, um, I don't want to be touching buttons. <laughs> I can't let it all open when I get there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> but that that's, that's all, and it was so, poignantly uh, presented to me when I was talking with these participants just about the, the how unique uh, impairments uh, reflect in accessibility, right? So one, one really funny example was uh, at, the, at the Paralympic or the Pan Am Games Village, we were talking about um, access to the cafeteria. And within the cafeteria, it was like there was 
you know, you think about a cafeteria for just able-bodied people who can stand and access things that are up, you know, up high or, or down low, but lifting a tray up above, down to your lap, um, filled with, you know, food in hot soup or something like that. One of the really funny points was around this uh, pot of oatmeal, which was just sitting around on the thing. And the oatmeal was up super high. And you could tell that a lot of people wanted to have access to this oatmeal because it's so good, but that it was spilled all over the area in front of the oatmeal. So, you know, just by looking at that, that people were having trouble accessing this, uh, this food item. But to think that that is, is so, uh, would be so easily overlooked because it's like, okay, we'll just put it on this table, which is, you know, 36 inches high off the ground. And it's, that's the standard height for, you know, your countertop. Well, maybe things need to be dropped down and lowered for more easily, easy access so that you don't actually have to use those upper body uh, aspects. If you don't have them like myself, or you don't have the hand strength or the biceps or whatever you need to, to lift, those things just won't be looked at because it's it's just there and it's part of the the pieces that that's just the normal way that we do it. And just as we're talking about in some of our research forums or research team, um, that whole concept of, of that's the way we used to do it or it's always been done that way might not be the model moving forward during a, a, a you know a post COVID environment for things. Maybe it's going to make people think more realistically about the impacts of accessibility or the impacts of decisions that maybe are old. We don't. We maybe can start moving towards new concepts around how things ought to be done. And I think you know door openers or or positioning of certain things doesn't necessarily have to be that way because it was done that way in the past. So you guys hinted at a lot of things that could be done better in general from your research. I'm interested to know if you have any recommendations for Western or the people that design Western spaces that might be helpful for them to consider, especially in the many new buildings and then many new designs that are coming forward at the university. Hmm. Well, in my honest opinion, I haven't been on campus in a while. So I can say that when I was at AHB um, accessing the, the buildings there and even going to the library or to the student center, um, the access was always there. It's, and again, it always typically for me boils down to, you know, carrying things or opening things. Um, and I always think that those types of decisions to put in big heavy glass doors or might aesthetically look good, but it's maybe not the most uh, practical when you're thinking about getting people in and out of doors. And those kind of decisions are, okay, I, I get the aesthetic features and it might not be practical to put in automated doors or something like what you would see in a you know, mall setting where the doors automatically open. But that I think is related to maybe a design and a policy decision. And once those decisions kind of get really assessed, when people start really realizing, okay, it makes more sense to keep it, keep some of those basic things that we do, even just doorways. Um, once that decision gets made to, to say, okay, all doorways, as we know, need to be 36 inches and, and so a chair could get through, but that they don't need to, you know, be that heavy aspect of a heavy qualified door. I think that's one thing. Um, you know, other things like just getting around campus, I think uh, Western is doing a, a good job of, of removing barriers, whether what they're doing in the next phase of that is, you know, new builds should, should be in that case, new updated universal designs in, you know, something, for example, like Thames Hall. Uh, this rebuild is going to be really exciting once everything is all done and said we can actually get a tour of the building and see what you know what the last year has has come with it so um, but parking uh, accessibility parking on campus um, that could be something else that maybe could be explored 
a little bit further is, you know, it's it's costly to, to, to pay for parking on campus, um, especially if you're a person with a disability um, who has an accessibility parking pass. Um, maybe there could be some additional parking spots that could be uh, implemented. There's a lot of space, uh, Western, um, maybe that could be something that could be explored as well. Yeah, um, I think something that did come up from um, uh, the focus groups that we had was um, this idea of, you know, during COVID there being certain elements that have in some ways exacerbated, um, exacerbated disability or the um, isolation of people with disabilities, you know, I mean, when, when, when the pandemic started, we, um, there was just concerns with the mask and, you know, for, for people with disabilities that um, rely on re reading people's lips, you know, for, for, for communication or that need their lips to be read because perhaps, you know, they have a speech impairment and they just certain ways that they've been communicating. And, um, but there's also this idea of um, now they're, they just need, they needs to be with social distancing, um, that space for a person say with a wheelchair or a mobility scooter um, needs a little extra space now, you know, yeah. and um, there's, they they, there's an attitude change that needs to happen amongst um, students and amongst um, just society where um, that shouldn't be singled out. That shouldn't be made a more a big deal than it is. Um, and that, um, yeah, they should just be mindful of um, how they respond to situations. Like, so, so one of our participants had said, you know, for them, they see in people's eyes when like they need to get into a lift and everybody else can't get into this lift now because they're, you know, they're in there with their wheelchair and it's just like, now they'll just wait until the hallway is completely empty to go into the into the lift because they just don't want to get those looks. They don't want to, you know, and they just, this is an attitudinal um, aspects to it um, that helps exacerbate this feeling of, of just being othered. Um, but then I really honestly, this is what Project Echo is about. This is what the Capture the Barrier campaign is about. It's actually about getting these experiences, these opinions, the, these suggestions put through. So right now, I don't think we can confidently speak to like, this is what needs and this is what we recommend, but we do hope that with participation in this campaign, I mean, it's only been out a week, but with participation in this campaign, um, we will start gathering that voice and gathering those perspectives and those recommendations. I love that. I love the focus on getting the voice because again, we often make assumption about what people need or what's best without having that conversation. So I'm glad that Capture the Barrier is a thing, it's happening, it's being promoted. Um, I just have a few more questions. One being, do you guys have any, like a message you want, like one thing you'd like to say to students, Western, the community? Well, I, from my end is that I think, and this is why I love sport, is that sport acts as a nurturing ground for change. And I think through sport, we can actually see uh, people's attitudinal opinions. We can actually capture people's uh, perspectives on people who have are living with impairment because it's almost forced, right? You, you have, if you wanna participate and you have an impairment, you will fit into a specific classification or a grouping within this and we respect that. And I think sport research at Western uh, is doing such a good job of trying to push that agenda forward. And I think the more allies that we have doing even small bits of research that are, you know, focused on some aspect of impairment, of disability, of recognition, of, of all of these aspects of, of that we see in accessibility related 
aspects around campus is that it's so crucially important to keep pushing this boundary and allowing for inclusive opportunities for really anybody who's, who's living with impairment in some capacity. And that's part of what I, why I love being involved in sport and as well being part of this research group is that there's so many things that we're identifying that are, you know, they're, they're there, but somebody's got to take ownership or accountability to try to improve on the, the situations for these people. And I think as a person with, a, with an impairment, I feel like it's a little bit on you know, my shoulders to, to, to try to bring more awareness and uh, attention to these campaigns that, we're, that we've started and um, that we just carry them forth. And sometimes we might have to pass the torch to another group of people and bring in more people, but it's, uh, it's a big initiative to try to, to you know, capture the voice of people. Uh, sometimes people don't want to have their voices captured or they don't know that the benefits of actually having or taking part in something like this, that they can actually have a big impact um, just by making one or two comments. And I think that's something that if we're looking to the Western community and the, and the research community as well, is that to step up and get involved. I think it's, it's really something that even registering in Project Echo, getting your, you know, getting a, a, a login, participating in whatever it is that we've, whatever campaigns that we're starting to go up, like the Capture the Barrier campaign. Uh, but there's a lot of really exciting things that you can get involved in and to try to identify more people with impairments in sport. Let's increase participation. I think that's one thing that once, once we start recollecting in this post, uh, let's say return to, return to play environment, as things open up is that I want to see like tons more people. I want to see people busting my old world records. I would love to see that, you know, and, and just more kids involved in, at the grassroots level, because that to me is a good indication of a healthy community. Um, I mean, I don't have much to add to that, um, except um, the echoproject.org. That is the website. Um, visit it, register, um, join the conversation, bring your experiences, bring your, um, yeah, you know, your opinions. Let's have a conversation. Um, we will be having people that are, you know, decision makers in disability community and with policy that affects the disability, the disability community. Um, and so these are opportunities to have conversations with those people, have what you have to say heard. Because um, ultimately that's, that's what we want research to do. We want research to um, help uh, provide evidence-based decision-making, you know? And um, as, as, as Adam said, like, I, well, he kind of alluded to. I, I also like kind of like, ooh, kind of like, you know, cringe a little at the word capture voices. It kind of feels like an alien invasion type thing. <laughs> but <laughs> it is, it is so important that um, decisions don't go on being made um, based on what an organization thinks that everybody needs or what you know. And um, as we go forward into a post-COVID um, era, if physical activity and access to physical activity needs to change, let the changes be done now. Yeah. When we are trying to figure out how to return to support, let the changes be done now, but let those changes be done with um, your voices in mind, with your actual lived experience in mind. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I wanna say theechoproject.org. Say it again, theechoproject.org. Register, Come, just converse with us. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's collect some data there. I love the emphasis on the website. And just out of curiosity, are there ways for people to um, participate via social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? How can they do that? Yeah, so our social media handles um, are on 
Facebook and on Twitter are Project Echo 2020. And on those, on those platforms, you will find um, a Capture the Barrier, how to get involved with Capture the Barrier. Um, and then from there, how to take uh, what, you, what you've captured, what you've experienced, and move that conversation onto the website. So there, there is that. Um, for Instagram, our handle is proj, so P-R-O-J dot echo, E-C-H-O. Um, and then we do have once a month, we have chat nights. So on our website, um, we will all be convening at the same time and you can find all that information on our, on our social media. But I think the next one is on the 26th where um, we just come together with, you know, the research community, um, organizers of, of, of people in um, sports organizations, um, our partners come together and we have discussions via text. So there's no video, all text um, with participants in Project Echo and participants of Capture the Barrier. Um, do you guys have any other final thoughts before we end today? I just would say thank you for having us today. It was, uh, you know, we've we've been putting a lot of effort into Project Echo and, and these research initiatives that we have going for, you know, parasport participation and just people with impairments. Um, and I think, you know, to have this voice and have some to sit down and have a, a solid conversation with you and, and have some sip on some tea and get this podcast out there, you know, it's it's just really a relaxed opportunity to to boost up what it is that we're doing and, and talk about accessibility do things that we're really passionate about um, and advancing in our research at Western. So thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you also um, for helping us push this agenda. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you both for being here. We always love some hot tea and we're happy to spread as much of this out there because anything we can do to educate the public, get people talking about accessibility so it's more something that's commonplace versus something that seems taboo. It needs to just be normalized. Great. Thank you guys again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. All of the information and links can be found in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode where we interview Sarah on her experiences as a student with a disability and the occupational therapy program at Western.